This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I don't know whether I should report, but I I guess I am going to report on the fact that since we aired last week's program, Mr. Millen and I traveled out of California to the Sandwich Isles, Hawaii, America's 50th state, where we recorded some interesting commentary on uh, on the Hawaii of many uh, decades ago, which, which will hopefully work its way at some point into this program, although uh, judging by some of the content, I'm not sure how it possibly can. It uh, trended toward the amusing and, and the gossipy, and uh, while Mr. Millen and I had a pretty good time <laughs> recording all of it, uh, we shall see how much of it can work its way into this program. I, I hope some of it can. And of course, while such things offer wonderful distractions from everyday life, they do take one away from the normal planning that uh, might go into, say, producing a radio program. But every time uh, we have traveled, it's provided an opportunity to read quite a bit, uh, which we think is recommended at all times, but when you travel, you've got some downtime, and you usually plow, plow through some material, and I'm happy to report that I did some plowing through the book we forward promoted a few weeks back, World Without Mind by Franklin Ford. It's got some interesting write-ups uh, in a, a number of places because it is quite an interesting tome. The subtitle is The Existential Threat of Big Tech, which has been a favored topic here in Radio Parallax. We admit that there are but wonderful benefits brought to us by modern technology, cell phones, computers, the internet, etc., etc., but it is becoming increasingly obvious to people that there is a terrible, terrible downside to this reorganization taking place uh, by societies that needs to get addressed. Mr. Ford does an excellent job of this. Uh, Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, likewise addresses this issue, and we are rather pleasantly stunned to note the cover of the current issue of The Economist features the headline, Social Media's Threat to Democracy. So I think what we should do is read from what The Economist had to say, take an excerpt from Mr. Fuller has to say, see if we can make arrangements to get him on the program in the future, and perhaps Tim Wu, to talk about this very topic. Someone we might also enlist in this effort would be Dr. Andy Jones, who is something of an expert on social media, and he's talked about it at great length on his very solid program, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. And we are blessed on today's program to have someone whose PhD dissertation some years back was on the subject of artificial intelligence, which is uh, a theme which weaves its way through these discussions of of high-tech in the modern world. We expect to be joined here by Dr. Artie Ingram, who we like to refer to as AI, to do some color commentary on the play-by-play, which I hope to provide. Oh, that's that's not his real name, but he is embedded in the industry that uh, that is artificial intelligence. So we, we expect very much that he will have some enlightening things to say, but we don't necessarily want to impinge on his day-to-day activities, shall we say. Because this promises to be some heavy stuff, I'd like to take a slight digression at the top of the program to, I guess, ease our way into this, do some of the things we always like to do, which is to cite 
quotes, clips, jokes, anecdotes, and then do the good, the bad, and the ugly. I would like to start with a quote, which I was quite taken by from Franklin Foer's book, in which he's quoting Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. He used to manage a hedge fund, by the way, before he decided that something that was very underpriced in America was books. He was able to build his Amazon empire by manipulation of that field, shall we say. The quote from Mr. Bezos I find irresistible is that he says, I'm grumpy when I'm forced to read a physical book because it's not as convenient turning the pages. The book is always flopping itself shut at the wrong moment. God, who hasn't had that problem with a book? The quip of the day comes from AI popularizer Ray Kurzweil, who I did not know anything about until I started reading Mr. Forer's book. We'll have more to say about him before this hour's up. But the quip from this so-called guru of our AI future is that virtual sex will provide sensations that are more intense and pleasurable than conventional sex. Yes, that is the outlook of a true visionary. Well, like I say, have more to say about him in a minute. And for our stat of the day, we may have many, but this is truly our stat of the day. We have that, according to reports in the media, in this case, The Week magazine, sad to say, the National Archives held back 300 documents last week related to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. As we predicted on this program the true numbers would be distorted by the media. And when you pick up your current edition of the week, you'll find it right there in black and white. According to the unnamed source cited in the magazine, more than 2,800 documents were declassified last week, but 300 were held back. As reported on this program last week, this is false. 2,800 documents were released out of approximately 30,000 meaning that, well, over 90% have been retained. Of 3,100 documents that had not been seen at all, about 50 were released. When you're subtracting 2,800 from 3,100, you are mixing apples and oranges. The true numbers would be more like 28,000 documents have been retained, and of the 3,150 Documents that have never been seen, about 3,100, still remain unreleased. In fact, I find this really scary, and we'll have a lot more to say about it before this month is up, because yours truly does plan to travel down to Dallas, Texas, where a conference will be held, as it is every year, on the assassination of JFK. I expect some interesting data to be presented, and which I will dutifully trot back for you, dear listener. For an anecdote for today's program, I can't resist this one which is that an Arizona man has put up his family ranch for sale because he's fed up with extraterrestrial intruders. John Edmonds claims he's encountered dozens of aliens trespassing on his 10-acre desert property over the past 20 years and that they once attempted to abduct his wife. He said they actually levitated her out of bed and tried to draw her up into the craft. Edmonds recommends that anyone interested in the $5 million ranch be very well grounded because the energy here has a tendency to manifest with Whatever is going on with you, well, we find it very easy to believe that the energy at that ranch is manifesting whatever's going on with Mr. Edmonds. And um, actually, here's another stat of the day we have to throw out. The concentration of carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere has now surged to an 800,000-year high last year, 
The greenhouse gas averaged 403.3 parts per million, up from 400 parts per million the year before, and just 280 parts per million before the Industrial Revolution. Reportedly, the last time the Earth had a comparable concentration, the planet was 3 degrees Celsius warmer, and sea levels were 20 meters higher than now, which would put where I'm recording from right now underwater. All right, and in some follow-up from last week's discussion of C217U1, <laughs> the object that came streaking into our solar system on a very strange orbital path indicating that it came from deep space, well, I'm, I'm intrigued to note that um, they're now calling it a comet. The reporting on this and new scientists did not mention the fact that, that streamers or gas coming off the surface of this object uh, labeled it a comet, but one presumes that is the case. But there is some back off on this idea that it is uh, interstellar. Some of the scientists are noting that it, it might have interacted with Jupiter, another planet, in such a way that it changed its orbit. Astronomers are going to continue to monitor this object, and they'll be able to do so for about another couple of weeks as it leaves the solar system, and, and we'll be happy to report anything they decide. And something we haven't talked about much on our program in the past but we've made, I think, passing mention of, is the Bitcoin. I've asked people in the tech industry what they think about it, and uh, I've been told by some of them that this is very weird. They don't understand it, and they want nothing to do with it. I don't really know where to come down on the topic of the Bitcoin, but I am intrigued by the fact that a survey of the process used to make these transactions, which is highly energy-intensive, uh, well, it, it's, it's, it's quite a guzzler of electricity. Current estimates are that the annual electricity consumption of Bitcoin mining, they have to do a lot of what is called mining to check entries in various uh, computers so that no one can create a false ledger. I don't understand all this. But anyway, it's very energy intensive. And apparently Bitcoin is using the same amount of electricity each year as is the nation of Ecuador which makes you wonder that if it really caught on and we all started using Bitcoins to transfer everything back and forth, uh, whether we wouldn't crash the world's energy grid. That's something we need to get an expert to talk about. Uh, our AI expert today doesn't feel that he's able to do that, so we'll leave that for another program. But something we don't want to leave go is what appears to be a favorite of our listenership, as far as we know. By the way, we haven't heard much from you lately. Would you please drop us a line to let you know you're listening and you're out there at info at radioparallax.com. Just a friendly hello now and again reassures us that there's ears listening. At any rate, let us jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week this past week for booty shakers. After the repeal, after 91 years, we would note, of New York City's Prohibition-era cabaret law, which, <laughs> hard to believe, banned dancing in the city's bars. Now, I have to admit, I, I don't spend a lot of time in New York City bars, but I do know enough to know that quite a bit of dancing has taken place in them over the over recent years, certainly <laughs> the last 91 years. 
And that this makes you just pause a minute and think, how oh, these legislatures on the state level, on the national level, of course, Congress, on, on local jurisdictions, right and left, churning out laws and regulations, you know, 24-7, well, at least when they're in session, constantly telling us what we can or cannot do. Well, almost a century ago, someone said you couldn't dance in a bar, and it's, they've only gotten around now to straighten that out. The mind reels. At any rate, it was evidently a bad week last week for heterosexual white males with the news that the Democratic National Committee is hiring new staff for its technology department. But reportedly, white men of the heterosexual persuasion apparently need not apply. An internal email from Madeline Leader, the DNC's head of data services, lists eight open positions that will help, quote, tackle all elections, unquote, but asks recipients not to forward the email, quote, to cisgender, white, straight males, since they're already in the majority. And it was an ugly week last week for democracy in Kenya with the news that Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta won 98% of the vote of last week's repeat presidential election thanks to an opposition boycott. He says he expects legal challenges to this victory. This vote was a redo of the August 8th election in which Kenyatta was initially declared the winner before the Supreme Court nullified the vote because of a string of irregularities. Opposition leader Raila Odinga then sat out the redo because the election officials he accused of orchestrating the fraud in the first place had not been replaced. And it was a good week or bad week, depending on how you interpret it, I guess, for Barack Obama last week who reportedly will interrupt his lucrative post-presidential life to report for jury duty next month in Illinois. If selected to be a juror, Obama will earn $17.20 a day for his services. If there's anything dumber in the American system of justice, or perhaps even the American way of life, than the jury system, we are unaware of it. And it was perhaps a good yet also ugly week last week for trolls, with the news that Roger Stone, a clip of whom we played in this program a few weeks ago, uh, the eccentric, it's described, former Trump advisor. Well, I'm not sure he's a former advisor. I think Donnie still gives him a call on a regular basis. Anyway, he had his Twitter account permanently suspended for a series of expletive-filled attacks on CNN anchors. Reportedly, Stone also accused Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol of, quote, packing on the pounds, hashtag porky, unquote. And before we enter the world of computing, let's do a couple other items we're going to snatch from, in this case, the week, which, fortunately for us, likes to go through columns across the United States and repeat what was said in them. A couple of them have caught our eye. The first from Nicholas Kristof, writing in the New York Times, noted that the fruits and vegetables you and your kids eat may be contaminated with a nerve gas originally developed in Nazi Germany. This is true. It's a pesticide called chlorpyrifos. It's made by Dow Chemical. Studies have shown that it damages the brain, reduces IQs, and has been linked to lung cancer and Parkinson's disease. The Environmental Protection Agency banned chlorpyrifos for indoor resi residential use 17 years ago and was preparing to ban it for ag and outdoor use this year. But apparently after Dow donated $1 million to President Trump's inauguration committee, the EPA reversed course. What a coincidence. So, chlorpyrifos will keep getting sprayed on the food we eat and on golf courses so it trickles into the water we drink. 
It is perhaps not as well known as it should be that the organophosphate, and in some cases I think other pesticides, which we use to kill bugs because you can kill bugs with a smaller dose than you take to kill people, were developed for use in warfare against humans. And oh yes, make no mistake about it, they will kill humans in higher dosages. We'll talk about that more in the future. Something else I don't want to belabor, but I thought interesting came from the current edition of Harper's Magazine, which talked about Donald Trump's two appearances as the host of Saturday Night Live. I just thought it was curious that The Apprentice, the program that Trump used to tout the fact that he was the largest real estate developer in New York, which was not true then and has never been true. But NBC saw a certain interest in giving Trump free publicity on Saturday Night Live because The Apprentice was also on NBC. And and of course, the national broadcasting company is owned by the media conglomerate and defense contractor General Electric. That's something somebody ought to look into. Actually, we'll probably quote from that article, if not in today's show, a future show. But writing in NBCNews.com, also a GE subsidiary, we have this from a man called Dante Cini. Said Mr. Dante Cini, One conspiracy theory is popular among Americans of all political persuasions. The belief that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone in assassinating President John F. Kennedy. He quotes a new poll from 538.com, which finds that 61% of Americans still think some other group was involved, and only 33% say that Oswald acted alone. Mr. Cheney said that with no smoking gun in last week's release of some 2,800 files related to the assassination, suspicions will continue. A majority of people in nearly every demographic believe in some kind of conspiracy, including men, women, whites, blacks, Hispanics, registered voters, non-voters, and both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton voters. Mr. Cheney apparently thinks that this shows how stupid we all are. He says in a country that can't muster a majority for anything, belief in a JFK assassination conspiracy is still as American as apple pie. Well, maybe, we would like to add, for good reason, and let it go. All right. Let's talk about The Economist. Let's talk about their cover story titled Social Media's Threat to Democracy, after which we will talk a little bit about um, Google and its efforts in the direction of artificial intelligence, among other things. But anyway, this piece in The Economist is, is of two parts. There's the article about how the world was trolled, and there's an editorial piece by the various editors of the magazine sounding off on the topic. I will start with some quotes from it first, which is that in 1962, a British political scientist, Bernard Crick, published In Defense of Politics, arguing that the art of political horse trading, far from being shabby, lets people of different beliefs live together in a peaceful, thriving society. In a liberal democracy, they noted, Nobody gets exactly what he wants, but everyone broadly has the freedom to lead the life he chooses. However, without decent information, civility, and conciliation, societies resolve their differences by resorting to coercion. How Crick would have been dismayed by the falsehood and partisanship on display in this week's Senate committee hearings in Washington. Not long ago, social media held out the promise of a more enlightened politics— as accurate information and effortless communication helped good people drive out corruption, bigotry, and lies. Yet, Facebook acknowledged that before and after last year's American elections, between January 2015 and August of this year, 
146 million users may have seen Russian misinformation on its platforms. Google's YouTube admitted to 1,108 Russian-linked videos, and Twitter to 36,746 Russian-linked accounts. Far from bringing enlightenment, social media have been spreading poison. Russia's troublemaking is only the start. The magazine notes that from South Africa to Spain, politics is getting uglier. Part of the reason is that by spreading untruth and outrage, corroding voters' judgment and aggravating partisanship, social media erode the conditions for the horse trading that Crick thought fosters liberty. Pretty strong words, but they're just warming up. They go on to note that the use of social media does not cause division so much as amplify it. The financial crisis of 2007-08 stoked popular anger at a wealthy elite that had left everyone else behind. They note that it's not just social media alone that has the power to polarize, just look at cable TV and talk radio, but they note that whereas Fox News is familiar, social media platforms are new and still poorly understood. And because of how they work, they wield extraordinary influence. They make their money by putting photos, personal posts, news stories, and ads in front of you. Because they can measure how you react, they know just how to get under your skin. They collect data about you in order to have an algorithm determine what will catch your eye in an attention economy that keeps users scrolling, clicking, and sharing again and again and again. Anyone setting out to shape opinion can produce dozens of ads, analyze them, and see what is hardest to resist. The result is compelling. One study found that users in rich countries touch their phones 2,600 times a day. They go on to note, it would be wonderful if such a system helped wisdom and truth rise to the surface. But whatever Keats said, truth is not beauty so much as it is hard work, especially when you disagree with it. Everyone who has scrolled through Facebook knows how, instead of imparting wisdom, the system dishes off compulsive stuff that tends to reinforce people's biases. This aggravates the politics of contempt that took hold in the United States, at least in the 1990s. Because different sides see different facts, they share no empirical basis for reaching a compromise. Because each side hears time and time again that the other lot are good for nothing but lying, bad faith, and slander, the system has even less room for empathy. Because people are sucked into a maelstrom of pettiness, scandal, and outrage, they lose sight of what matters for the society sh they share. Magazine says this tends to discredit the compromises and subtleties of liberal democracy and to boost the politicians who feed off conspiracy and nativism. Consider the probes into Russia's election hack by Congress and the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, who has just issued his first indictments. After Russia attacked America, Americans ended up by attacking each other. Because the framers of the Constitution wanted to hold back tyrants and mobs, social media aggravate Washington gridlock. In Hungary and Poland, without such constraints, they helped sustain an illiberal, winner-take-all style of democracy. In Burma, Myanmar, where Facebook is the main source of news for many, it has deepened the hatred of the Rohingya, victims of ethnic cleansing. What is to be done? Well, the magazine makes some suggestions, and we're going to make some more before the hour's up. But what do one does have to wonder if, if this can possibly be reversed. Now, there was a great deal of fanfare a couple of years back about how social media was instrumental in the overthrow of some tyrannical governments in Arab nations. And evidently, social media did play an important role in these social upheavals. 
But in the main piece of the article written on this topic in The Economist, it was noted that the social media-fueled movements have often failed in the end. Describing how in Ukraine, Mustafa Nayem, a journalist there, had tried to organize support for a rebellion on Facebook with some success. Magazine notes that by the time he was doing that, the army in Egypt had reestablished its power where social media had been so critical of the downfall of Hosni Mubarak in 2011. The magazine notes that, but the idea has taken hold that by connecting people and giving them a voice, social media had become a global force for plurality, democracy, and progress. Now, the article then goes on to discuss Gamergate, something we don't know a great deal about, how in August of 2014, a computer scientist in America, Iran Joni, G-J-O-N-I, published a long rambling blog about how his relationship with Zoe Quinn, a computer game developer, appeared to imply that she had slept with the journalist to get favorable coverage for her new game. This evidently started a firestorm on the internet of all sorts of accusations and what the magazine describes as the entire spectrum of social media tools, videos, articles, documents leaked to embarrass, a practice known as doxing, were posted to YouTube and blogs. Magazine notes that most people not directly involved in this were able to ignore it, critically, crucially, the mainstream media. When they noticed it, they misinterpreted it. They took Gamergate to be a serious debate in which both sides deserve to be heard, rather than a right-wing bullying campaign. Looking into the role that social media played in politics in the past couple of years, the magazine notes, it is the fake news equivalent of Gamergate, not the active idealism protests against tyranny, which seems to have set the tone. They note that in Germany... The fall-right Alternative for Germany party won 12% of the parliamentary seats in part because of fears and falsehoods spread on social media, such as the idea that Syrian refugees get better benefits than native Germans. In Kenya, which we just mentioned a moment ago, weaponized online rumors and fake news have further eroded trust in the country's political system. (laughs) Whatever trust there still remains in Kenya's political system. The magazine notes this is freaking some people out. They quote Jim Messina, described as a political strategist who has advised several presidents and prime ministers, as saying, fake news spread on social media is one of the biggest political problems facing leaders around the world. They go on to note the government simply don't know how to deal with this, except that those that embrace it. In the Philippines, President Rodrigo Duterte relies on a keyboard army to disseminate false narratives. His counterpart in South Africa, Jacob Zuma, also benefits from the protection of trolls. And then there's Russia which has both a long history of disinformation campaigns and a domestic policy and a domestic political culture largely untroubled by concern of truths. It is taken to the dark side of social media like a rat to a drain pipe, not just for internal use, but for export too. Putin's regime has used social media as part of a surreptitious campaign in its neighbors, including Ukraine, France, and Germany. They also note in America and elsewhere. They note that at outfits like the Internet Research Agency, professional trolls work 12-hour shifts. Russian hackers set up bots by the thousands to keep Twitter well-fed with on-message tweets. And they note that bots generated one out of every five political messages posted on Twitter in America's presidential campaign last year. The RAND Corporation calls this integrated purposeful system a firehose of falsehood. The magazine then goes on to talk about the representatives of Google, Facebook, and Twitter fielding hostile questions on Capitol Hill this past week. They note that given the concentration of power in the market, Facebook and Google account for 40% of America's digital content. This needs to get looked at. 
We highly recommend that you check out this article in its entirety, dear listener. They do pay a compliment in this piece to Donald Trump, someone who apparently knows how to use this system to his advantage. When Trump sends one of his outrageous tweets, often adroitly timed to distract from some other controversy, the world pays pathological levels of attention. The president is today's attention economy made flesh. He reads as little as possible, gets most of his news from cable television, retweets with minimal thought, and his humor makes it very clear what in-group he is in with. Above all, he loves outrage, both causing it and feeling it. They also know that being this thoroughly part of the system makes Trump eminently hackable. His staff, it is said, compete to try and get ideas they want to him to take on board and into media they know he will be exposed to. But outsiders can play this game, too. In 2015, enterprising enemies set up a Twitter bot dedicated to sending him tweets with unattributed quotes from Benito Mussolini. And last year, Mr. Trump finally retweeted one from Italy's fascist dictator, quote, It is better to live one day as a lion than 100 years as a sheep. Anyway, there is so much to be said about this that it's sad we don't have more time to do so. In fact, we need to take a break in a minute. The article comes to a close by noting that another one of Mussolini's sayings, which has not yet been retweeted by Donald Trump, was that democracy is beautiful in theory. In practice, it is a fallacy. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and boy, do we need a break, after which we will join by our special guest today, Artie Ingram, or as we like to call him, AI. Stay tuned. <laughs> 